we're 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 talking about writing. We're here with the well. I guess I'll introduce you first. Uh, we're here with David Perel. So uh, David Perel first came to my attention via Twitter. If you follow Twitter and you're interested in writing, uh, you've probably heard of him. Uh, he posts a bunch of thoughtful pieces on writing and investing and online education. He runs the North Store podcast and a writing school called Rite of Passage. Um, does that about sum you up? Yeah, kind of. I think that the thing with being being creative is I'm always sort of trying to sort of break what it is that I'm doing while also doubling down on what it is I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And so I'm really doubling down on the Red of Passage pod or on Red of Passage as a writing school, sort of moving beyond the North Star podcast. Because, you know, the North Star was really an answer to a question. I left college and I got my first job and I got fired or laid off after seven months. And I was like, what am I going to do with my life? And so I was very enthralled with this idea of a North Star, a place that you can go somewhere where you can orient yourself. And I remember sitting on the Upper West Side in New York one day, reading The Road to Character by David Brooks and thinking like, who do I want to be? That's such and, a New York statement, by the way. Yeah, sorry, right. Sorry. <laughs> such a New York statement. And I was like, I was like, who do I want to be? What do I want to do with my career and I said I'm gonna just start this podcast the North Star and so I just started interviewing people just trying to figure out what do I want to do and that led me to write a passage which is what I want to spend the next many years doing if I could have a say in it yeah. uh, I like the name the North Star yeah I really liked it I remember thinking I was like oh, that's a pretty clever name that has like a reason a purpose you're kind of like the North Star podcast you follow your North Star mm -hmm. I liked that a lot Thank you. Yeah, mine's called the Neville Medora podcast. So it's just not as cool. It's probably not as cool, but the thing is, I bet a shocking percentage of people called the North Star podcast, the David Perel podcast. So you're just doing what people organically do, which That's is good fair. copywriting technique. Yeah, actually. the Joe Rogan experience, Tim Ferriss. Okay, yeah, fair enough. That's just cool. what people call the podcast, right? Yeah. Um, I guess we'll get into a podcast, but why did you, we were talking a little bit before, you said you kind of stopped recording the podcast. What, what happened there? Yeah, I think a couple things. The, I mean, the big one was I just really want to focus on online writing and a creative life. I mean, that's, those are the ideas that I'm getting really interested in. And, you know, you have to make choices in terms of time is scarce and there's a lot of, there's a lot of paths that you can take and sort of a, the North Star was always just very exploratory for me. It never really had a direction. It was always like, let me interview this person, then that person. They'll be in finance, physics, you know, they'll be writers, they'll be musicians all over the place. And I just wanted a little bit more direction from the conversations because the thing is, like, there's always this explore, exploit trade-off. And I am now more interested in sort of this craft of online writing and being a citizen of the internet more than ever. And I really just want to focus on that and so, and take my creative pursuits and sort of put them in that orbit. Hmm. Interesting. Have you noticed a flux in the type of writing that you used to do from before? Because I feel like you used to, I, I mean, I think you're a pretty young guy. You're 26? Seven. 27. Okay. So do you ever remember going to blogs? A little in what sense? Well, it used to be in the beginning of the internet, like there was no like place, you wouldn't have feeds, right? So now you open up some Facebook, Instagram, whatever to have you, and you just look at a feed. It used to be, you think like, oh, I want to go to Noah Kagan's blog. Mm. And that, that's how you read it. And now I don't think I really read blogs anymore. Is, is, this a, is this a thing that you're seeing or do you continue to read blogs or mainly like small tweet size things? I 
spend some time reading small tweet size things. I mean, a decent amount of time, but no, I spend a lot of time reading blogs. Um, mm. I love nothing more in life than finding a writer, whether they're, they've written books, whether they're bloggers and just pouring through the, the blog archives. I love doing that. Now I do think that there was an era of blogging that is continued now by like Tyler Cowen and Marginal Revolution, which is like very bite-sized posts. And I think that that era is gone. I never participated in that era. I basically didn't read and wasn't interested in ideas for like, till I was like 21. Like I just, like, you know those books that you're supposed to read in middle school and high school? I didn't read a single one, mm-hmm. not one. <laughs> and so that whole era, I just didn't participate in. But now there's people like Tim Urban and there's people who like Ben Thompson who write these more longer form pieces. And I love just binging that stuff. Hmm. So this is something I've been thinking about a lot because I've noticed the way I write. Uh, someone that works in my company, she was like, I don't think you've written a blog post in a long hmm. time. I've, I've, I've made YouTube videos. I've made podcasts. Yeah. I've made tweets. I've made social media stuff. Haven't really made a blog post in a while, which is kind of funny for someone who calls himself a writer. Right. And I think there's like this compression of information that's been happening mm-hmm. ever since. And I'm not saying it's good or bad, but it used to be like a book. A book was where you got information just because the distribution of it was hard. Everything had to be packed into one book because right. you got one shot at it. Then it became like magazines, the newspaper columns, blogs, then Twitter. And then people started videoizing those things into reels, Instagram stories, TikTok. Um, Where do you see this going? Like the compression of information? Do you see the information expanding again, like long blog posts? Or do you see it just being everything's tweets now or tweet threads? Both. Yeah. So what you have is your average or median consumer is going towards more and more compressed ideas. But at the same time, there's podcasts that are two to three hours long that people absolutely adore. And there are still times where I want to read long form. And also the most mileage I've gotten out of the things that I've made has been from long form, 15, 20,000 word essays where I spend four to six months of my life just inhabiting a single idea and then beginning to express that. And yeah, in terms of sheer reads, in terms of sheer page views, sometimes they get more. But I think that what really matters is that the people who read through all those, they develop a kind of relationship with you that can't be developed through short form bites. Um, And so ultimately, I think that the answer is both. And yes, it's true that I think the median consumer of information, their attention span is maybe getting shorter. Like a lot of these cliches I think are true, but at the same time, it is sort of continually shocking to me how essays that I've written like Peter Thiel's religion and what the hell is going on, they still bring in people. I mean, I just wrote a piece about the liberal arts at 17,000 words, and I've now like sort of clustered with this galaxy of people who are who want to create new liberal arts schools and that happens because of the depth and the multifaceted nature of that post which admittedly was probably a little too long (laughs) Uh, that's totally true when you say that because some of our top performing like seo articles are Mm -hmm. long articles i wrote five years ago 
and still to this day continue to bring in hundreds or thousands of visits per day and also get email signups and sales, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Whereas I've written some viral tweets and uh, no one knows about them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like they're, they're just gone in the ether. Well, it's because just the, the the form of Twitter is more ephemeral. And so I guess as as things get longer, the thing is you want to just match the length of what you're writing to the ephemerality of the platform. So you don't want to write long-form essays on Twitter. And when you publish something on your blog, you want it to last the test of time. I always say 10 years. I want the things that I post on my blog to be just as relevant 10 years from now as they are today. And then when I publish a book, it'll definitely be held to that standard. Hmm. What about uh, the curiosity when you write, where are you finding ideas? Do you have a file or is there like a Google doc that called David Perel's ideas? Um, what, what do you do for creativity? Yeah. So in a way, my whole life is an answer to that question. And so there's a lot of tax that we can take on this. I think very practically, I am very deliberate about note-taking. So my business partner is Tiago Forte. He runs a course called Building a Second Brain. Took it in 2017. It just changed my life from just being able to be somebody. I remember I used to walk around New York City with all these ideas as I was walking. I'd sit down at a Starbucks and I would look at my computer and all my ideas would just disappear. It was as if my brain had gone blank and I was like in the movie 50 First Dates when she loses, Drew Barrymore I think loses her memory every single day. That's how I felt. Yeah. And so what I did was I said, hey, let me focus on notes, use that so that I can write from abundance in instead of scarcity. What I was trying to do was sit down with a blank white sheet of paper and say, okay, David, snap my fingers, can ideas come? And I basically inverted that. I said, you know what? I'm gonna just take a bunch of notes and then whenever I get stuck, I'll draw from those notes. And through that, I push through my writer's block and I can basically always, if I'm stuck with something, take notes, compile them, and then write from that abundance, sort of build off the notes into something that reflects my own voice and these emergent ideas that come from spending more time with the, the ideas of others or my own observations as I capture notes as I move through town or whatever. Hmm. And you take all these, I mean, I've, I've listened to your stuff about it. It seems like Notion is like a pretty big uh, part of your note-taking, right? Yeah, so we do our team, our team note-taking and SOPs in Notion, mm -hmm. and then I predominantly just use Evernote. It, it's it's not a great platform, but it just works well enough that I'm like, you know what, I'll stick with it. All right, uh, what is the content triangle? Yeah, so this is has to be put in context of somebody, you know, just the way that we used to write books, right? So mm -hmm. if you were to take someone like Henry Thoreau, he very famously goes to Walden Pond in like 1848. And he's like, I'm going to escape society for two years. And he comes back with this book. And it's, it's a great book. And I think that this is how a lot of people think of writing. They're like, I need a writer's retreat. I need to go to a hotel room, escape society. And there's this like necessary tension between living your life and spending time with people and doing things you want to do and writing. And it's like, if I'm going to write, I need to say no to everything else. And the second I have kids, the second work comes up, 
I can't write at all. And that's how I thought about writing for a long time. And it didn't work for me. And so rather what I said was, what we can do is we can see a book as the end state that's actually like a fifth or sixth draft of ideas that we're developing over time. And we can develop these ideas during the course of our ordinary lives through conversation like the one that we're having now. You're always getting feedback when you're having a conversation. So if you're communicating an idea, you're getting feedback from somebody saying, hey, that's pretty interesting. If they're leaning in, if they're nodding their head, or if they're dozing off, they're sort of looking sideways, they're obviously bored or confused or you've lost them in some fundamental sense. So then if you go out to dinner and you say something, a bunch of people are laughing, people are saying, hey, that's really insightful. You make a point that then gets the conversation on a thread. And then that idea is sort of lingering in your mind as you're walking home. Well, go tweet that idea go put it in your email newsletter the next week. And what you're doing when you do that is you're continuing to get feedback. You're getting responses from people. People are giving you more data on, is this idea interesting? Can we reframe it in a way that makes more sense? And this is like what comedians are doing all the time, right? Mm -hmm. Like before a comedian goes and does their Netflix special, they're playing in small little comedy clubs or performing in small little comedy clubs where they're basically getting feedback on what the audience is doing. Mm -hmm. And so whereas the Thoreau model is like, okay, this is our first run, let's go do our Netflix special. The content triangle is basically getting all these mini points of feedback and over time doubling down on what works, compressing your best ideas, so that then by the time you do publish your book, by the time you do have that performance, it is like your fifth, your 10th run through that idea rather than just your first. Yeah, I, that's actually a good point. A lot of comedians do that. Mark Norman is famous for like just being really popular on Twitter and then he just develops those in the clubs, whichever tweet. He says whichever tweet gets the most retweets the quickest. Yep. That's the one he runs with. Then he runs that bit in the club, sees what words make it funny, and then goes on the, the full special with it. Exactly. Interesting. Content triangle. Is that something you uh, kind of coined? Yeah. Uh, but nice. this is a big thing. Coin terms. Coin terms. Like this is huge. Like I think that this is one of the, the Perel triangle. I was talking to uh, I was talking to a friend the other day who's been sort of deep in the game of studying what different online creators who are successful like what do they do? Mm -hmm. And he said they do two things really well. The first is they coin terms. So they basically will take something like the content triangle, which is an entire concept and stuff, and you, they'll just come up with a term for it and then it sort of gets spread into the ether and then that name points back to them. So as people use it, people, people are like, oh, who came up with the content triangle? And the thing is, sometimes it, it, it works really well. Sometimes, you know, it doesn't work super well. Um, the, the inventor of FOMO, he came up with two terms, one of which was FOMO. And then in that same article where he came up with it, it was like fear of fear of something else. And that other one just didn't catch on, but <laughs> FOMO like entered the lexicon and he just developed the term. So that was the first thing, coin terms. If you come up with an idea, I'm coining terms all the time. And then the second is uh, being self-referential. So linking back to yourself mm -hmm. so that what people do is they get in this hyperlinked web of your ideas, and then you create this contained ecosystem of your thought. 
And those two things, I think online creators who do that well tend to be quite successful. So, so let's move into this like conversation about like rough content marketing is that what I guess you would call it. Mm -hmm. um, I first found you because you were kind of hyper-focused on Twitter. And I think I found you during the pandemic time when like uh, everyone was kind of inside. Yeah. And I was just like, this motherfucker is tweeting like every four seconds. Like, I mean, I think you tweeted, you probably tweet like 20 times a day. Yeah. Right? Is that accurate? I tweeted a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It seemed like you were inside like everyone else and just tweeting all the time. And so that's where you, you kept popping up. And I was like, okay, this is pretty good stuff. I'm going to follow this. And um, that was kind of the first time I'd actually got really involved in Twitter. I've had a Twitter for years. Mm. And you seem to be hyper-focused on Twitter, whereas Twitter was usually kind of like this little, like, it's a thing you also had in addition to your blog. Mm. It's like in, in your social role. It's like right. Twitter, Twitter, TikTok. You it's get like your supporting actor. Yeah. And yours was like, I remember seeing your site and it was like you had your blog and then only one social link, Twitter. And I was like, hmm, I don't know if he just, this is a smart thing or he just hmm. hates all the other social platforms. Because you think if you post it on the, all the other social platforms, you get more reach. But you were just on Twitter. Was that a deliberate thing or did you just like Twitter better? What was the thought process behind that? So there are a couple things. First of all, Twitter just rocks. Like it's the best way to meet people. It's pretty awesome. Um, all my friends I meet through Twitter. It's like the best social network ever. You got me on Twitter, by the way. I started posting yeah. on it because of you. Good. Yeah. That's, uh, I always had it, like I said, but I just spammed people with links to my and blog. And you feel like you meet people pretty well through Twitter? So, I was just like shocked that of like the A-list people I'll have conversations with in my messages. And I'm like, this doesn't happen on Facebook. It's often. insane, right? Yeah. It's insane. Yeah. And so I learned that when I was maybe like 19 years old. And it was just like, uh, it was just one of those quake moments. You know, it was like, I was going to school in a small town in North Carolina, and I just didn't have friends who were interested in ideas. And then I could just go on Twitter and unlock opportunities for myself with a tweet and knowing how to go from tweets to DMs. Like, that was so transformative for me. And so what happened was back then... The way Twitter worked was instead of a like, it was a favorite. And instead of a, maybe, yeah, it was a star instead of a heart. And it was all chronological at the time. And so if you had a good tweet, like a fire tweet, you get like 17 likes because mm -hmm. of the way that the platform was structured. And the only way that someone could see your tweet who didn't follow you was somebody who they followed would retweet you. Mm -hmm. But then what happened was around... I don't know, like 2018, 2019, Twitter embraced this algorithmic feed. And there's a lot of negative second order consequences of this. But one of the best things was for creators, if you knew how to leverage this feed, your reach and your distribution on your tweets could, like, I'm talking thousand X of what it used to be. And so what happened was I noticed, I remember I went into 2020 with 30,000 followers. By the end of 2020, I had, maybe this was 2019 or something, by the end of 2020, I had something like 75,000 followers, maybe 100,000 followers, and then it just like exploded even this year too. Mm -hmm. It was something like that. And it was just this, this, this moment where because of the algorithm change, if you knew how to leverage the platform, your audience could just explode. And it all happened for me basically during the pandemic was when I really focused on it. I made a course on how to crush it on Twitter. Mm -hmm. And when you, uh, James clears this great line, he says, he says, if you want to learn 
Or if you think you can learn a lot by reading a book, try writing one. Mm. And it's the same thing. If you think you can learn a lot by being a student, try teaching a course. Mm. And once you teach a course, like I figured out all these subtle things, right? All these little this thing, that thing, and just together, the symphony of those strategies combined to just create sort of a an or orchestra and an explosion of growth. Hmm. Yeah, I watched that and I was just like, that's pretty impressive. And and so the thing that convinced me actually, get this, uh, I don't know if you guessed this, the thing that convinced me, I was just like, dude, this kid's onto something cool, is when Bology started liking your tweets. And I was like, mm. that's pretty cool. Yeah. I was just like, that's pretty awesome. It's just like, I'm, I'm assuming y'all didn't like super know each other that well or something. Um, oh, but I met him through Twitter, you know. Exactly. So I was just like, is. okay, that's a pretty cool thing. So I started tweeting pretty recently, I guess, around that time last year. Yeah. Yeah. And it's been kind of cool. It is a little bit distracting. I wrote a, I, I read an essay or a thread. I forgot one of yours that you said you were so like definitely addicted quite a bit. Definitely addicted. But it almost seems like an, okay, there's certain addictions. Like if you're doing heroin and uh, you're blowing people under a bridge for it, yeah. that's a bad addiction. Yeah. <laughs> if you're tweeting all day, but learning, it's kind of like, well, it's an addiction, but it's not like horrible. Mm -hmm. It's like addicted to working out. It's like, eh, it's kind of positive, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that it just got to the point that where it, it was negative. I was just spending so much time on Twitter. And also, I wanted to explore ideas with a little bit more depth in my life. Mm. And so sometime, it was like in May or so, I basically started just deleting Twitter off my phone every single day. Mm -hmm. And then I only use Twitter at night now. And then I can only, on my computer, I can only go to my own profile. So if I have an idea, I can tweet it right away. Then I just close it. And I can just look at stuff on my own profile, but I won't get sucked into the feed. And then at night, I'll just download Twitter and then just catch up with the world then. But I just literally delete Twitter off my phone every day. Like, it's just not even downloaded right now. I've noticed you've tweeted a lot less now. Which is now a new problem. Now I want to start tweeting a lot more. <laughs> but, so I'm trying to figure out how to balance. You miss the it. Two. They got you back. Exactly. They got you back. Um, it, it, it. So when I started tweeting a lot more, I was kind of I was going to be like, I'm going to tweet three times a day. I thought it was going to be very easy. It's it's actually and so it's kind of what we talked about the distillation of information before, where you actually kind of have to take a big thought and then kind of cram it down into something small. And so what I've done lately is, like you said, with the Drew Barrymore uh, example of like forgetting what you're writing. Yeah. I would say, okay, I'm going to tweet in morning, afternoon, night, and let's sure. see what happens. Sure. So I'll wake up in the morning and be like, damn, I got nothing. Yeah. And I'm like, well, for any of my other writing, I have a big blog called Neville's blog file or whatever. And it's just a bunch of blog posts, topics I want to write about. So I made one called tweets and that's been super helpful. And I recently added today and tell me what you think of these. So, um, one thing I've learned through tweeting is that just writing independently is kind of one thing, but then getting them shared really juices the algorithm. And that's where you can go to the moon. Hmm. So, uh, Sam Parr, who lived down the street over here, uh, they, uh, the hustle crew has like pretty large Twitter followings. Yep. One of the things they'll do is like when something's pretty good, they'll all retweet it to all their audiences. Then it compounds and then those people, et cetera, right. et cetera. So you kind of set off the chain reaction yep. uh, on the algo. And so I've started realizing, Hmm, what have I done? That's done something like that. So when I've tweeted at like the mayor of Miami or something like that, yeah. or we met him and he tweeted our names, it was just like, Oh, you get a huge boost there. So his audience sees your audience and then you get a lot of followers. So I started doing things like I'm going to start quote tweeting a little bit more commenting on popular things and then also responding to popular people's tweets mm -hmm. a lot more. Yes. That works really well. So those are, those are on the right track. Responding to other people's popular tweets works really well. 
But the thing that works the best is threads. Mm. Because the thing is, I think that threads are like in, they're just treated differently. I think that when they first came out, that's when you had the biggest advantage because it was as if they tweeted, they treated all of the comments on a single thread as the equivalent to a bunch of comments on one tweet. And so you were like tricking the algorithm into thinking that a thread was, was like, it didn't know to disassociate a thread versus a tweet. And then you had all these replies from people who were going on read wise, save tweet and stuff. So when you would write a thread, it would necessarily just get this explosion in engagement. Mm -hmm. And the, and, and so that I, that thread advantage, I still think exists but then also there's this weird psychological thing that makes absolutely no sense but we all feel it we're like you'll see a thread on twitter and you'll be like i need to read this right now just spend a bunch of time reading threads and like rationally it doesn't make sense like go read a book go read some article something that will stand the test of time but there's something about a thread that everyone's talking about where you're like i need to read this sam walton built walmart here's how he did it yeah exactly 19 threads exactly and uh, and I don't know, people just really engage with threads. You know what? I also see them engaging. I've done threads a couple of times. I've heard this uh, advice before. I've done it. And like the number one thing is like read YZO, save thread. Yes. Like, exactly. So meaning they're not reading it. They're just saving it somewhere. And I've done that too, where I'm like, oh, this is a good thread, but I don't feel like reading it right now. So I'll yeah. save it. And then yeah. you can save it to your to your notes and all those sorts of things. But threads are, are the really good way to grow. So it's kind Twitter. of just like a Twitter version of a blog post. But... People yeah. read them and they get shared so much. <laughs> yeah, I, I, start, I tried a couple of them and some of them, of course, like anything, some of them worked, some of them didn't. And I learned a couple of things in the meantime. Um, but it sounds like just getting in front of other people's audiences is kind of the way to grow the best. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah. a huge thing. When I, when, when I started, I was very deliberate. I had certain people who I just wrote for. And then I was like, how can I get this person to share it? And then they would share it. And that's how I built my audience for yeah. a long time. I mean, I almost think of it like sponsors. Like you have a couple big people with big followings and you sponsor their growth. So you'll they'll they'll happily come on your podcast. They will promote your stuff. They'll retweet it. They'll share it on their blogs. And it's hard to find those. This isn't like a, a scalable strategy. I think a lot of distribution just comes from hustle and grit and tenacity and a certain kind of creativity. And so, yeah, I found a couple of people to sort of sponsor my growth and they got me up on skis. And once I was up, <clears throat> once I was up on skis, just kind of went from there. I've, I've kind of noticed Twitter becoming of far, far, far more importance than when it started. Um, it used to be kind of a joke. They started referencing it on t on the news, mm -hmm. and then it became like a part of the thing. Then I think uh, uh, the president at one point gets on and starts saying crazy stuff, and uh, like that really, I don't know. I think that like catalyzed some sort of huge change. I don't know what happened there, but it seemed like it was a far more important after that. And it seems like Twitter is kind of the uh, pulse on the world. You remember how Reddit used to be the pulse on the world? It was like the front page of the internet. Mm -hmm. It aggregated all the thoughts, ideas, and uh, sifted yep. the, the cool ones to the top. Now I think it might be Twitter. So you get someone like Balaji tweeting stuff that should be tweeted 10 years in the future. And then people read his stuff and make kind of tweets about that. And then they make YouTube videos about that. Then Twitter, podcast videos about Twitter's that. so, the, the, the thing about Twitter is like you open up on your phone and you're like, okay, this is just this private platform. It's like this algorithm just sort of working for my interests. And it's in theory, just giving me this personalized newspaper and it's just me and the algorithm and these people who I'm following are directly speaking to me. It's not like that at all. And the moment that 
the, the, the moment that changed this for me was I was, on, I was on an airplane and the guy sitting across from me was reading my Twitter. And I was <laughs> like, oh my goodness, this platform is so global. And people, like, there's, there's not just these numbers of impressions. It's like people are actually reading these things. And it's so easy for it to just feel like intimate one-on-one -on -one when it, in fact it's it's quite global and and large in scale well it's just like a better blog if you think about it what is a blog it's a platform that you maintain on wordpress that takes a lot of effort and sure. servers and dns knowledge and then you have to upload something to it and then you have to also have to make a title and then you have to publish it somewhere and then tell people about it whereas twitter it's like you just post it and it does the rest that's true done that's true but the thing is look i think that you have to you have like you have to ask like why are you creating stuff on the internet and for us i mean it supports our lives and so for me like, access money yeah for, for for me i have i have employees you know who i need to pay their salaries and pay for their health care and all those sorts of things and so there's real business reasons why i'm sharing stuff on the internet and so i have to think about okay how do i create a customer from my ideas and i think of it a lot like dating i think twitter is the bar it's like the best bar ever <laughs> but you're sort of you know you're mingling you're doing small talk you're sort of sharing you like your high level ideas. This bar has a shit ton of dudes also <laughs> <laughs> you know like twitter's not the player just like the bar it's not the place to just meet someone and dive into your life philosophy but you know what you meet someone you exchange numbers you get someone on your email list right you exchange numbers or they're on the email list you begin to sort of build a relationship so now you're in emails you're sort of sending them to hey here's a youtube video here's like an article that i wrote you're building the relationship and then eventually the way that this goes over a long time horizon is they'll listen to podcasts like this over and over and they'll have your voice in their ear maybe they'll read your book and then they sign up for a course. They sign up for the product that you sell. And so I do think of it like dating. And I think that Twitter just so happens to be, if you're sharing ideas, just the best bar in the world. Hmm. That's a great analogy. Um, Elon Musk recently liked to See, quote- content triangle. That would be a good piece, right? So you just said, that's a good analogy. So I just got feedback from you that that is like a good thing that I haven't said before. If I were to share that and then a couple other people say, hey, that's good. Now that's my blog post. That's already written. Nice. Um, I do something similar with, I, I do a Friday email. I think everyone does either a Friday or Monday email. Yeah, exactly. I think you do both. I do both. You, you both. So I do a Friday email. It's generally, I just take my tweets and put it in the, mm -hmm. <laughs> the email. And that's kind of like the, the whole email. Um, Elon Musk had a great tweet that he liked by an, uh, a woman named Bindu. And I forgot her last name, but you can look it up. And it said something like, Twitter is the closest thing we have to a human neural network. Hmm. Each person is a node with weights and measures that goes on to pass its biases to the next. And, and I, I thought I was just like, damn. That's pretty cool. That's have you, cool have you heard that? No, but I like that. It, so it's kind of, it's kind of, uh, he always talks about uh, mind viruses. Mm -hmm. So uh, a virus can be a good or bad thing. Sure. He, he's not making it a bad thing, but he's saying an idea can catch on and permeate through society. Of course. Right. And a lot of it happens through Twitter first and then permeates down to some of the other social platforms. So I don't know. I think Twitter is quickly becoming like this real pulse of the world. Um, and I love that it's so, um, People complain that it's a little bit, uh, it's, it's toxic or bad, but I like that you're allowed to be toxic or bad and you don't have to listen to that person, hmm. but the good stuff, uh, kind of wins out. And also it's just like, no one's getting hurt on Twitter necessarily. It's just like words. So it's not a big deal. So, yeah. I mean, I think that like there's moments where, 
well, I know a lot of people have had some really just brutal things happen to them on Twitter. And when it comes to the toxic aspect of Twitter, I think that the problem with that is that the way that the, the platform onboards you, I think leads you to a lot of that toxicity. And if you compare a platform like Twitter, which if you want to create a, a more sheltered environment, a place where it does have less of those toxic features and you can curate your environment, it just takes a lot of agency and sort of cleverness, like familiarity with the platform from the user's perspective, knowing you can block people, you can mute certain keywords by changing your social graph and interacting with the platform in a certain way. Like every single time you like something, you're training the algorithm mm -hmm. to on what they should serve you. But the thing is, this requires a lot of work from the user where if the next Twitter, whatever it is, is going to look a lot more like TikTok, you go on TikTok and the you don't really, I mean, you can follow people, but that's not a, that's not a central piece of the algorithm. What makes TikTok so special is that the algorithm kind of instantly learns your tastes and then gives you more of what you want. And so it does a lot of that filtration automatically. Hmm. I like the option of like, I wish there was like a, a mood that you can say, yeah. like, like Twitter, like in the morning, sometimes I'm like, okay, funny, like outrage <laughs> is great, but like, come on, show me cats. Yeah, exactly. Like, whatever. I wish I could just say right now, I'm not in the mood for that. Yep. So Twitter, give me some of the good YouTube stuff. YouTube does a good job of this. At they the do. very top now, there's like music and there's sports. Like I love golf highlights, love golf highlights. Like I never miss my golf highlights from mm. PGA Tour ever. But like, don't give me that at 10 a.m. because that's when I need my music. Mm. Or at 2 p.m., that's when I watch 10 to 15 minute YouTube essays. And mm. so I'm in all these different moods. And the thing is, you know, on Sunday evening, that's when I watch my golf highlights. So um, one of the upsides of Twitter that you've mentioned, a lot of Twitter talk here, but uh, uh, one of the upsides you've mentioned is kind of like being able to interact with people directly, like Bology or some like big time people sure. that you otherwise probably wouldn't have as much access to. Yeah. Have you uh, invested in companies through Twitter and things like that? What are some upsides of being popular on Twitter? Yeah, I think investing is, is one of the big ones. But the other thing... The thing that I just adore about Twitter is finding up and coming creators who they have 500 to 3000 followers. They're sharing really interesting things and they're kind of have like their own pulse on the world, like their own vibration that is, is different from the consensus. And I just reach out to them and we hop on the phone and we just, we just talk. I mean, that is how I make my best friends in the world. Like people who have small audiences on Twitter who are distinct and differentiated and just, just bring them, bring them together. Even, I mean, that's, that's then what I'll do is wherever I go, I'll, I'll have a couple friends who are like that. And then if I fly into Los Angeles, we'll just do a dinner with a bunch of them. And so you can just be a connector of those people and they tend to just have distinct views on the world. And I'm always just trying to get out of the consensus, you know, like mm. trying to find people who are into weird ideas. They're, they're, they're sort of on the fringes They're They, they like have their wavelength and they have some kind of perspective on the world that I'm not seeing elsewhere mm -hmm. and being able to reach out to those people and have it be kind of a big deal for them is the best part of having an audience on Twitter. Do you follow any specific communities like build in public or anything? Um, I'm familiar with build in public. Yeah. Um, but for me, it's just, 
you know, it's just, just a bunch of like, what I love, what I love is people who in another life, they would be academics, but they're sort of unsatisfied with the academic path. Mm. So they tend to work, you know, a normal job or something, but they're like extremely interested in ideas, but then they don't really get to implement ideas in their work. And so they go home and they're just like, sort of like solo academics. They just do it for fun. They'll read like all these crazy books and, and, and just like they're obsessed with figuring out the world. Solo academic. I like that I just term. reach out to them. Yeah. I that love those Content people. triangle. That's a new one. Yeah, solo exactly. Academic. Solo academics. Yeah. The solo academic. That's an interesting term. Um, what do you use like a, a machine or system? Like you said, like, I guess you use a uh, notion, um, yeah. I guess, or, or is it just kind of random stuff? Do you, do you, so I'm trying to do like a quote tweet of this, of that, is that a mistake? Is, is this, is this how you do it? Or you just kind of follow your passion? Well, okay. If you want to grow your audience on Twitter, write threads mm -hmm. and get more in touch with when you feel an epiphany epiphanies are felt they're in your body not in your mind and so the thing is that a lot of what stops people from doing well creatively is they lose touch with what their body is telling them and i think that a lot of people in terms to just try to be more productive what they'll do is they'll suppress their emotions. Cause like, if you look at a kid, they're, they're, they're ruled by their emotions. Mm -hmm. And then I think often phase two is to suppress your emotions. You become totally um, stoic, not in the literal sense of the term, but stoic in the way that people speak about it culturally. Um, and so you sort of turn off your emotions, but then what I spend a lot of time doing and working on with my students is then reactivating the emotions, not so that you're ruled by them, but so that they can sort of help you. And so you, you can listen to what your body is saying. And if you ever go, you know, you're reading a book, you're at an art museum, you're having a conversation, like your body actually tells you once you've come up with an insight, all this to say when it comes to Twitter is it's sort of like this barbell of like small little insights. So last night I'm, I'm, I'm sitting down and I'm, reading about this new platform called Urbit, which is like a new computing platform. And then I'm working on this documentary of my favorite musician. And I'm going to spend the next, I've spent four months working on this. I'm spent till the end of the year working on this. And so it's taking up a huge portion of my life, just learning about these two things. And I realized like, okay, I, cause I'm stressing out about this. And I'm like, you know what? So the, the, the problem with traditional productivity advice is that often the big breakthroughs that you have don't feel productive in the moment. And so I'm stressing out. And then that is the answer that I get that lowers my stress. And so it's one sentence. And so I go out and I tweet, it gets more than a thousand likes. And so that just is from this like internal warfare being waged in my mind. And the, the sense of calm that I got said, okay, I should go tweet that. So that's like one end of the of the spectrum, which is just small little tweets. And then the other end is just good tweet storms that, you know, Sahil Bloom does this really well. Truck Fawn does this really well. And where what you're doing is you're just taking an idea and you're simplifying it and you're distilling it in a way that's easily shared and easily understood. Excellent. Uh, so speaking of Trung, speaking of Sahil, both I follow, who are some other good follows on Twitter? In your opinion. And it doesn't have to be necessarily about writing or anything. Yeah. Um, I think that Nicole Williams, she's an investor in New York. She's she's incredible. 
Um, Jonathan B is one of my very best friends. He and I are working on uh, another thing that has nothing to do with the other stuff that I'm working on. I'm just driven by curiosity. We're working on a giant lecture series about Rene Girard. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jeremy Giffen, who is an investor, uh, is a partner at Tiny Capital. He and I just wrote this liberal arts piece together. I'd say that those three people, I just, they all have less than maybe 15,000 followers and they're all just phenomenally interesting. I, I disagree with a lot of things that they'll, that they'll say, but they just surface so much novelty in my life. And it's all, they're very good curators. And, mm. and, and so I can take their threads and I can just go follow them. Interesting. Uh, do you use lists to manage your Twitter? I, if I spent, I probably should, but I just, I just don't. Um, but, but then doesn't your feed get clunked up with people like one person, like, let's say, uh, Jonathan B. I don't know anything yeah. about him, but let's say he loves oh, writing. You know what I stuff. do? You know what I do? This is like one of my favorite ways to use Twitter rather than lists. I, I found my own workaround. People who I like following, I'll go and I'll look at their likes and I'll just read their likes from the past couple days. Mm. And that is the best Twitter thread there is. Interesting. So actually I do kind of use a list and I get to my exactly what you're kind of getting at, which is like the deeper reason why you would use a list. But I find that just looking at the likes of people you admire is an Well, I found just like my, my Twitter th thread uh, feed is quite enjoyable because yeah. I only follow roughly a uh, hundred in that range. Oh, good for you. People, like Elon Musk and stuff. So I actually don't follow you, but you're at the top of my, I, I have one called like I think it's called copywriters because I'd named it one time and then it just added to it. Yeah. But you're at like the top of that list. And so I see your stuff when I go to that list. Mm -hmm. But you used to tweet so much that I was like, all right, this is a little bit too much David Perel. Right. And so I'm, I try to get like a balanced uh, Twitter feed. And so I have all these different lists and it's made it quite interesting. Like sometimes like in the morning, I want just like fun stuff. So I have one called sciencey stuff. Yeah. And I follow all these like uh, science accounts. Mm -hmm. It's a really good time. And then I don't have to view political stuff and all that kind of everything. Right. Interesting. Okay. I like that. Uh, well, I think there was a lot of Twitter stuff. Uh, it's pretty fascinating. That's kind of what I know you for. So sorry for so much Twitter stuff. Oh, no, it's good. Um, let's go to uh, something else that we both do. Uh, courses. So I run a thing called Copywriting Course. Um, you famously talk about cohorts. Um, and I've had Gagan Viani on here who, uh, Maven is cohort. one of my very best friends. Yeah. So uh, he was talking about cohorts and a lot of people have done cohorts and cohorts is essentially, it's a, it's like a class but online. Yeah. Right. And you run only cohorts for the most part, I believe for right. Only passage, cohorts. Yeah. Right. Um, what number cohort on you are you on now? We're going to go on to number eight. I'm so excited about eight. Cohort. Yeah. I I'm you're on like 17 for some reason. No. Oh, okay. I misread that. I'm Not so excited about cohort based courses. When though. did you start your first cohort? April, 2019. Okay. Yeah. And so I guess you do it every quarter roughly. So we did a bunch of them. I think we did five in the first 14 months, and now we do two a year. I can't do more than two a year. It takes everything out of me. It's so much work. So let's go into the downsides of cohorts. Yeah. A lot of work, and then you have to be present for it, right? You have to be in front of a camera to do a lot of it, right? Yeah, okay. So look, the upsides and the downsides are together. We can talk about the future of cohort-based courses and, and, and how we're going to solve a lot of these issues. But basically... What you get from cohort-based courses is you get a very small amount of time where there's tons of high energy. And what you can do is you can deliver a very personalized experience. So 
most cohort-based courses are maybe an instructor, a course manager, and then a bunch of students. Mm -hmm. We have a team of 24 people that run Rite of Passage. And so the the full-time staff is we have a data person we have and, and she's like really focused on operations and her job is really to look at what's happening in the cohort and direct people to where they should be going we think of it like coachella where like if you go to coachella you don't go to every single event there's a bunch of events it's a festival and you go to the ones that are most interesting to you and cohort-based courses like rite of passage are are very similar and then what we have is we have a team of alumni mentors with a lead alumni mentor and they all work individually with students to talk about some of the emotional challenges that they face or some of the technical challenges that they face and every mentor we just encourage to be as much of themselves as possible as distinct and differentiated from each other so that like music at a festival you can say hey this person wants rock this person wants hip-hop this person wants electronic music and then what we have is we have community stewards and editors so that every single person who submits a draft throughout the five-week program, they can get feedback. And so that the community forums and our live writing and feedback times every single day so that they're well-staffed. So for us, it's not just me delivering lectures. We're trying to get away from that over time. I, I do think lectures are extremely important. And I think that the industry is a little over-indexed on on pre-recorded lectures and we can talk about that but 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 ultimately I want it to just transcend me so that we can just have all these people and who are running the the cohort it's not so dependent on me as the instructor hmm. we we've tried a couple of cohorts or boot camps or whatever you call it basically live instruction right mm -hmm. and there's some positives in terms of like everyone shows up at the same time there's a little bit more community more interaction things yep. like that but if the goal of one of those sessions is just to transmit information to people i actually feel that instead of an hour-long presentation of me giving a crappy zoom call i can actually make a much better video that's like four minutes long that gets that information across sometimes so we've started doing this hybrid of kind of like live instruction where the humans are good at doing what humans do. So for example, if we're live with me, I'm actually going over people's copy together. Me and the writers are going over people's copy. But if I want to transmit a lesson, I will only pre-record it is what we've come to the conclusion of. Does that sound sort of? Yeah, it's funny. I, at some rational level, I totally agree with what you're saying. Like, of course that's the case. Like, if you were to just look at everything logically, you'd say, of course we should be doing that. But there's something about the energy of live sessions. I mean, I just think our live sessions are epic. Like mm -hmm. we have hundreds of chat comments. We have a culture. We have all of these inside jokes that develop throughout the cohort. And as we go on, we have in our final sessions, more than half of the cohort live at those live sessions. Mm -hmm. And so our ability to get people to actually understand the information, I think is, 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 is pretty high once we have those live sessions. And then we have time for students to interact one-on-one. -on -one. And then, yes, there are certain things that we bring into pre-recorded videos. Over time, I think that basically it'll just be on a spectrum where one spectrum will be exactly what you're saying. Do you want all the information delivered? in a pre-recorded way and the production value of those videos are going to be unreal. I'm so excited to start producing Hollywood level videos mm -hmm. about writing. They're going to be entertaining. They're going to be 
funny, like master class, inspiring. They're gonna be like master class, exactly. And the thing about that is, you're gonna be able to just go at your own pace. You'll still have a mentor, so it won't be totally passive, and you'll still have a community that you go with, and you can start and do it at any time. Then once or twice a year, we'll do something that is much more live, like CBCs. And I think for certain people, they really like that because the community that comes from that and just the energy of those live sessions, it's, you know what it's kind of like? It's kind of like a concert in a certain way. Like if you, you know, concerts, they have these mistakes. They can be a little rough around the edges, but like they have this energy of all the people that you're with and just the humanity of the performer. I really think of myself as a performer when I'm doing Rite of Passage and even if the music like in some ways isn't as good there's something about a live concert that can't be replicated with album music mm. and i think that cbc's have have a bit of that interesting uh, i've made some great friends from some of our office hours that we do mm. uh i was in california last year and um this guy invited me out and he, i was like yeah, why don't you come to our cool malibu beach house that we're renting he was like well i'm staying at my buddy's place uh jamie fox's house what and i was like well i guess i'm coming to your house then wow. and, and we hung out we got to go to jamie fox's house twice and it was like this epic experience i'll tell you offline but uh <laughs> have you heard his interview with tim ferris yes amazing yeah so you know so that good. you know that studio where uh, he like recorded kanye's first like hit or something that's in his backyard no but like that was like this. the first place we went into when we got to his house and we were like wow wow uh this guy's just like a a, a student of mine it's kind of awesome that's anyways really cool. i'll tell you more of that uh, <laughs> <laughs> offline it's a it's an offline story um all right so uh quick two lightning round questions then we'll try this little interactive piece um all right, so lightning round with David Perel. You have about one minute to answer. Yes. How would you grow a Twitter following from scratch? I just get really good at Twitter threads. That's it. That's it. There you go. Next question. If you had to start over today, you don't have your email list, your Twitter, your anything else. What would you focus on? Where would you start if you're like an 18-year-old just getting started? I would, well, I'm going to assume that they have the same personality traits that I do. Because sure. that's a huge thing. But... I would say what I did worked really well. It was start a Twitter where you can just always put ideas out, start a podcast so that you can meet people and have build relationships with people who can promote whatever it is that you're doing and have a place where you can share longer form ideas so that when somebody finds you at the bar, they can build a relationship over a couple dates. Cool. Thank you. All right, so uh, here with David Perel, we're going to critique people's Twitter bios. You ready to do this? Yeah. So, so we have not seen these at all. So let's check out what's going on. Uh, Blake Imal. Oh yeah, copy AI guy. I know this guy. Let's uh, let's check out his uh, Twitter bio. What do you think of this? What recommendations would you make? Okay, so what I'm getting from this person is, first of all, they are very successful. So I'm not sure I would necessarily change, but I do think it can be improved. So what I would do is I'll help you grow your audience and sell your ideas. I would want to get a little bit more, a little bit more specific there. And I would actually start with that. I think that what Blake is working on to me is less interesting than how can they help me. Blake's profile picture communicates that he is fun or goofy or sort of a casual guy. He's not giving you this very serious and stern sort of suit look. Mm -hmm. And so what I'm expecting from that is 
that he is going to be have a lot of personality. The thing is the the bio description and the banner image to me scream a little bit more seriousness whereas get my freebies communicates the playfulness that i see in his profile picture interesting okay great little critique uh let's move on to another one wait go back to blake want to hear something crazy yeah okay you see on the right you might like jeremy moser uh-huh like my best friend in middle school in the world jeremy and i used to hang out all the time and we didn't talk for like 10 years. And now he's blown up on Twitter and we got together for the first time. Wordable, that's the plugin that goes from uh, WordPress to something. I guess right? so. Yeah. yeah, or Google Docs to WordPress. Yeah, we, we, we yeah. totally lost touch and we found each other back through Twitter. But we promoted him on AppSumo back in the day, I think. I really? Think, I don't think he bought that plugin or made it, but anyways, we, huh, Small world. Small world. There you go, Twitter, reading minds. Uh, let's go to Toby Hikari. All right. What do you think? What do you think of this guy? I just don't understand how this person is going to help me from what I'm doing. I feel like there's a lot of like little tricks going on here that, that, that I'm not really understanding. B building digital assets sounds, sounds quite generic. I just don't understand what this person does, uh, which is my critique. I would want to know what are you, how, how can you help me? What can I learn? What is your focus? And I feel like this person is sort of promoting a lot without telling me exactly what they can give me. I don't understand what FLLR1K is. I try to avoid acronyms whenever possible mm. because they basically lower the, the reach and distribution of whatever it is that you're focused on. Hmm. Um, Tam, basically Twitter's that bar, right? So what you wanna be thinking of is at a bar, you're, you're, you're talking about things that are broadly applicable. Whereas, you know, when you're chilling on a Saturday night with your high school best friends, you're using a lot of inside jokes. Your acronyms are inside jokes. What they do is they communicate to the group that you're part of the in crowd, but you don't want to use those sort of inside jokes and acronyms on a place like Twitter. That's much more of a public forum. Interesting. Okay. I'm going to open up a couple of these at a time. And we'll go through these. This is, this is very insightful. What about me? What about this guy? Okay, so I would, what, why are you thinking about that, uh, that banner image? Uh, well, a uh, random banner image I uploaded when I first joined Twitter and I never change it and it displays nothing. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of banner images that try to get a lot done. I mean, mine's just me in a beautiful place in Switzerland. I think you could communicate a little bit more personality with your banner image. Mm -hmm. On your banner image, you always want the thing, the focus to either be in the center or the right. You don't want it to be in the middle because the left side is the profile picture. Okay. A lot of people have banner images with a lot happening on the left that gets covered by the profile picture. Now, you do a, you do, do a couple things very well here. One of the things though that I would do with your first sentence is rather than saying, I like optimizing things, that's about you. I would say, focus on the person who is on your page. What, you know, I can help you optimize pages, posts, emails, and happiness, I think is a better way to think about this. Um, advisor to companies, I think that, look, it's a, it's a nice thing to have, but I think that you could get more out of that real estate by communicating more of what you can deliver to somebody else. But 
I do love that you're a vid creator and a writer. And what you're doing is you're saying you're leading people directly to where they can go. And hopefully once they go to those places, they'll see stuff that's good copywriting. That is them saying, wow, Neville is doing something right. I want to learn from this guy. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just always thinking, be very clear about what you offer and make it focused on the other person instead of you. A bio, the, the, the problem is the word bio. The problem is the word bio. It's less a word bio. It's more an elevator pitch. And if they called it your elevator pitch, it would actually, mm. people's bios would be a that's lot a good, better. That's a very good point. Cool. Thank you. You know what's so funny? I have this thing I call like being inside the box. Mm. So I've seen my Twitter profile a trillion times. Okay. And therefore, every like that banner, I, when you mentioned it, I was just like, oh shit, it's just a bunch of blue lines. I have not like actually seen that yes. for years, but I can go to your profile and critique it and be like, oh, that doesn't make sense. But for my own, I'm just have, bl I have blind spots. Dude, I was sharing some, uh, some stuff on my website with my students mm -hmm. and I was just talking through it and I saw so many things that I was doing poorly. I couldn't believe it. So uh, let's, let's check out this guy. I'm going to do my little JavaScript trick. Real go quick. to a guy like Julian Shapiro. Let's look at a good one because Julian is, Julian is like the best growth marketer in the world. <laughs> He's incredibly Julian, talented. I think I follow him more. There we go. Yeah. This guy's unbelievable. Okay. This is so good. Julian always does things well. So I deconstruct how things work, like storytelling and critical thinking, and share learnings along the way. Now, the thing is, yes, this isn't super focused on the other person, but what he's getting is you're going to learn about storytelling and critical th thinking. And he has this little cheat that he does that I think is brilliant. That writing is another thing that's part of it. And julian.com, if you were to click on that, you go to an amazing, an amazing just homepage. It's so well designed. It's distinct. And immediately writing well, growing a startup, building muscle, the blog. He basically gets a lot of mileage because his homepage is really good. Mm-hmm. Now, if you go back to his blog, uh, and I've been meaning to tell him that this, so I'm just going to tell it to him in public, but, or sorry, if you go back to his Twitter account, his book highlights, his book highlights right there, great book highlights. I, to me, that's only okay. Mm -hmm. I think that it could be a little bit more focused on storytelling and critical thinking, like a course on that, like a free email course. Mm -hmm. But I have seen some of the threads that Julian has posted and he does have an amazing collection of those. I just, to me, that's not a super compelling call to action. Also for the pin tweet, the pin tweet is the final part of your profile. I'm building a ranch in the middle of nature. What he's doing here is he's focused on something that's attention grabbing. I think that this could be a thread that focuses on critical thinking or storytelling that he mentions above, but there's a great line from, you know who Sam Hinkie is? Mm -hmm. So Sam Hinkie was talking about his strategy for basketball when he was with the, the, the Rockets and with the 76ers. And their first question, whenever they would ask about basketball strategy, is what are the San Antonio Spurs doing? Mm -hmm. Julian is the San Antonio Spurs of, of, of growth marketing. So if I'm confused, I just look at what Julian's doing. And also, if I think that Julian is not doing something totally right, I assume that there's something he knows that I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but that's my critique. He's like the San Antonio Spurs. We, uh, we would do that. So at AppSumo, we would do stuff sometimes that was just like a test. Mm -hmm. And people would be like, oh my God, they must have tested that to do it. And so they would just copy us and we're like, yeah, we don't know what we're doing. Yes. <laughs> kind of hilarious. Yeah. 
Great advice. Uh, I love uh, Julian's stuff. I love that little blog landing page. It's, it's amazing. It's really uh, cool. I guess we'll do one more and then we'll go to yours. I'm just curious cool. to see what your thoughts are. How yeah. about uh, Toby Hikari? Well, oh, we well, just we, did this yeah. one. Sorry. Uh, how about this guy? Okay, so immediately, I don't love the aesthetic of this. It, it just, it's trying too hard, I think. It's too many lines and and it's too focused on on just trying to be optimized. Mm -hmm. It's not really clear to me what I get from those seven buckets. And also I'm not sure that like if I were Omni, I would focus on find one of those things, really focus on them. Maybe I just, I still don't know what he does. I share tips for remote peeps. It just, it, it it's, it's not coherent and unified. Like I think it could be. I do like the want tips into Omni structured. I, I think that that's a decent uh, call to action. But what I would just do is exactly what you're writing. I share strategies for remote workers to do what? And in some way, this is my experience. This is what I'm working on. And so what you're doing is you're saying, I can be useful to you in this way. And this is why I'm uniquely qualified to be useful to you based on what I'm working on, what I've done in the past. And you don't need a crazy resume in order to do this. It's just good, concise, well-compressed writing that is focused on the other person answering the question of somebody sitting on their couch asking, how can this person help me? Amazing. Cool. It looks like he's just getting started too. So totally. I and really and, appreciate that advice. Yeah. I, I, I hope that he knows that that comes from a place of love. And, oh, I'm sure. And, we're not really roasting here. We're just, uh, we're improving. Yeah. I mean, maybe mine is too much like this, but, but it works pretty well for me. You know, what am I thinking here? The writing guy, I, I, I came up with that a couple of years ago. I wanted mm -hmm. people to call me that. I think it's a very simple, cl clear, memorable thing. And then I'm very deliberate about focusing on writing. I mean, I mentioned writing five times on the single page. Writing, I tweet about writing, my writing school, my writing, and then learn to write. Like, I just about want writing? that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I yeah. didn't know that. <laughs> so... So I mean, those are the things that 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 I focus on. I mean, what would you do here? I mean, this is this is quite simple. Uh, so here's the thing: it's a confirmation bias. So for, let's say David Perel in alternative universe has yeah. two followers. I'd be like, this profile sucks. Here's what right. I do to change it. Right. But because you have so many, and you're, I mean, far beyond me, I'd be like, oh, this is pretty good. Hmm. Must be doing something right. Well, that's well, that's the thing. That one of the most important parts of your Twitter bio is the the number the, is the following to followers ratio. Because the thing is, if I followed two hundred forty thousand people. It wouldn't be the same as me following 840. I, I like when people give marketing advice. They're like, this is what Apple does to sell these phones. I'm like, yeah, I'm sure their <laughs> exactly. web page has a lot to do with exactly. it. Yeah, it could be an HTML web page with nothing on it, and it'll still sell. But also Apple is like a, a huge marketing team. It's not going to work. They for... develop their own processors. They have a huge yeah. engineering team. It's like that stuff also plays into yeah. the sample. But yeah, I think your followers is the main thing that I'm like, oh, this is someone. Even if it had said nothing, I'd be like... Well, there's something here. Let's critique Tiago. Let's do one more because Tiago is like my best buddy. Tiago Forte. He's right there. He's right on the. Uh, he's right on the recommended side. Ah. Okay. So, what I would just do here is I would. <laughs> Someone had a great roast of him on a, on I think on one of your videos where they said Tiago Forte looks like Elon Musk got bought from Wish. Dude, he does look like <laughs> Elon Musk. He, he looks like ghetto Elon Musk. He yeah. looks like Elon Musk hardcore. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that Tiago here is focused too much on the 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 brands that he's affiliated with and not enough on how he can help people. I mean, Tiago, you know, Forte Labs, I don't like I don't think that that brand 
really is indicative of who he is. He also has it here double. I think he could remove both of these a little bit redundant, it seems. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I feel like he could mention building a second brain, which is what he's known for, exactly how building a second brain helps people. And what's hilarious about this is I could go in my phone and I have all the copy that he would need. If I spent 10 minutes with this, um, I think it'd be... I think it'd be totally good, but he's coming out with a book next year. So I'm going to work with him to, to, to make this better. But yeah, I help, you know, inventor of building a second brain, which will allow you to do X, Y, and Z. And also Tiago's not a very corporate guy and he's wearing a, he's wearing a collared shirt there, which I think communicates a kind of buttoned upness that Tiago doesn't have. He's a super, he's super much more casual and offhanded in the way that he does things, which is why people like him. Yes, exactly, exactly. I just kind you of mix up on the cuff. I teach you how to give you clarity and peace of mind. Yeah. Uh, how not to, you know, how to get your time back. He's actually really good at doing these things. He just hasn't optimized his Twitter account. That's because he's in the box. Uh, right. Similar. It's it's hard for us to analyze our own stuff. I like it. that. In the box. Yeah. Cool, Matt. Well, I think that concludes it. Fun, wide-ranging conversation. That was a good time. Thanks for coming over. Uh, yeah. Where can people find you? My, I have a 50 days of writing course. That's the best thing to do. So if you go to dperel.com slash 50 dash days, um, I, you'll, you'll, you'll find a 50 day email series where I just distill my 50 lessons for writing in 50 days and people seem to like it. And it's just many, many, many years of work distilled into 50 nice. articles. We'll put that in the uh, the show notes and everything. Cool. cool. David Perel, thanks for joining. This is a great time. Thanks, man. Thank you. Take care.